Welcome to the Pace Brotherhood. This is episode number four. My name is Alex, aka Pacer. I'm joined by our production guru, Lasad Corday, and Louis Marinelli. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Uh, thanks for working through some of the logistical stuff. So there's a lot of things we can talk about. Um, the world <laughs> is heating up right now. Um, but I want to start off and talk a little bit about you. Um, I actually heard about you a few years ago when you were leading the Colexit movement, which I thought was really interesting. You did some great national appearances, and it was intriguing and a and pretty bold thing to do. Um, although, you know, ultimately it proved, you know, it kind of proved to be fruitless. I think you also, you accomplished what you were looking to accomplish. So um, let's just start off. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself, where you grew up? Um, just go ahead and start riffing for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, I uh, grew up, I had the, I guess, unfortunate uh, luck of being born in a blue state. So I grew up in uh, New York and I lived in a town, well, I guess a city called Buffalo. And I grew up in Buffalo. And uh, at some point in time in my life, I decided I wanted to leave that place as many people were. Uh, in fact, I don't really know many people who, when I was growing up, who didn't want to leave Buffalo. So I was uh, very excited to leave Buffalo. I was pretty much ready to go anywhere. And I ended up in San Diego for the simple reason that I was a fan of the San Diego Chargers football team. And it was because of my uh, interest in that team and the interest in being able to go to the football games that I decided to go to California. Well, plus, of course, there's the uh, issue of the weather, of course, and California parks and things of that nature. But I wasn't somebody who said, I want to go somewhere where there's a beach and warm weather. I'm going to go to California. I was someone who said, I want to get out of Buffalo. I'm a Chargers fan. Why don't I go to San Diego? <laughs> so that's yeah. what I did. Yeah. Of course, I'm not a Chargers fan now because I think that the, the ownership there betrayed the city of San Diego when they moved to Los Angeles because of the s scandal about the stadium. So I've, I've stopped being mm -hmm. a fan of the Chargers now. Uh, actually, I don't even watch the NFL, uh, to be honest, anymore. But, uh, yeah, so I grew up. I was born in New York. I grew up in Buffalo. I moved to California. I moved to San Diego. And uh, in the middle of that trip, I went overseas and studied Russian uh, at, at a university in Russia, St. Petersburg, Russia. And when I returned from that study abroad trip, I returned with uh, my girlfriend at the time, who was actually my fiance, And we returned together to the United States. And we got married in the United States. And, you know, unfortunately, as, as often is the case, couples separate and we separated. And mm -hmm. upon that separation, I decided to go back to Russia. And that was 2016 in the middle of the uh, campaign for CalExit, right before it exploded with popularity, by the way. Uh, I mm -hmm. made the decision that I wanted to go back to Russia because our campaign at that time was so small and, in, and so tiny by, you know, comparison to other campaigns that, you know, I didn't really see there'd be a problem if I go to Russia because nobody's really paying attention to uh, what we're doing anyway. Now, that's not to say that we didn't have success in the early days. And we had a lot of press attention and we had stories in the LA Times, Sacramento Bee, you know, other stories here and there. I can't remember that at the time. And we were happy with that. But it wasn't the kind of campaign that had national attention. And when I decided to go back to Russia in the summer of 2016, you know, I was leaving the campaign in the hands of my uh, political partner, Marcus Evans, and he was going to take it over at that point in time. Of course, 
nobody anticipated, including Donald Trump, that he was going to win in November. And when he won, all of a sudden there was that backlash and that knee-jerk reaction of so many people in California who decided they wanted to leave the union. And that's where our campaign really exploded. Now, at that time, I'm already mm-hmm. already over there in Russia. You know, I already moved there in September. So now two months later, Donald Trump wins. And my email box explodes from zero to 21,000 emails in a couple of weeks. And we had such uh, outpouring of support and interest in our campaign that it was exciting and amazing in the beginning. But it was really overwhelming, to be truthful about it. And we didn't have the infrastructure or the people to deal with the amount of support and interest that there was for people to join the campaign in those early days. And uh, that was a problem for us because we were not able to take advantage of and use uh, all the bodies of people that wanted to commit themselves in some way, financially uh, or uh, academically, legally, or on the ground physically to promote our agenda and to promote our mission. So we missed out on opportunities simply because we didn't have the infrastructure in place. You know, I'm talking about the people that we needed to have answering the phone, answering emails, right. and so on and so forth, stuff like that. So uh, that's basically the background, you know, uh, born in New York, moved to California, started a campaign for California independence, moved to back to Russia. And when I moved back to Russia, it, it suddenly exploded in popularity. So um, where is your main residence right now? That's kind of an interesting question as well, because uh, I am, of course, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I had been living in Russia for the last five years. Um, I just left there about six or seven weeks ago. I'm now living in Turkey. Before that, I visited and stayed in Egypt and in Jordan. So we're kind of traveling around. Truth of the matter is that we're moving around from country to country. Uh, countries that allow both American and Russian citizens to visit without a visa. So that was, the number of those countries are fairly limited, but there's enough of them. And so we're moving from country to country at the time because my visa for Russia has now expired, so I can't be there. And we're waiting for my wife's immigration visa to be uh, processed so that she can go there. So in the meantime, in order to keep the family together, the three of us, me and my wife and our 11-month-old daughter, are moving around country to country where we can go as a family. I mean, I'm a U.S. citizen. My daughter's a U.S. citizen. She's also a Russian citizen. And my wife's a Russian citizen. So we need to go to places where Russians and Americans can both go uh, without visas. Now, that excludes most of Europe, frankly speaking, because Russians need a Schengen visa to go to Europe. Okay. And it excludes a handful of other countries as well. But we can go to Egypt. We can go to Jordan. We can go to Turkey. We can go... Uh, you know, Georgia, for example, the country. <laughs> uh, we're actually, next month, we're going to Macedonia. We're going to be there for a couple of months. And then after that, we're going to go, I think, to Bosnia oh, or to Albania or uh, Serbia or something in that neighborhood. And each of those countries, we can be there for, you know, 90 days at a time. So wow, we're so you guys are doing a lot of travel around right these now. countries waiting for... We're doing a lot of traveling. We're trying to, I mean, it sounds like we're going on this grand world tour, frankly speaking, but we're, I mean, it's kind of cool. But on the other hand, we're moving around from place to place every two to three months. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're living in places that are interesting places to visit. And uh, we're trying to find places that are relatively cheap when it comes to cost of living, uh, which I guess on the 
flip side of what I had said about the fact that we can't go to Europe, it's probably a good thing because if we were going to Europe, I mean, finding an apartment to rent for a couple months would be much more expensive than in Albania, for example. And so we're getting out, right. we're getting out and seeing some countries, which is good, something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, and we're being able to do it by renting places for about four to $600 a month, which I think is pretty good, actually. Uh, so we're doing that. And so at the time being, I don't think we really have an official, to answer the question, residence because, uh, you know, we're, we're no longer living in Russia. We're jumping from country to country every two to three months. And we don't know exactly when we'll be able to go back to the United States. You know, it depends on when that visa is processed. Uh, but when we do get back to the United States, we're not coming to California because I've decided that I'm I'm done with blue states. And uh, we're going to choose a red state, a red county in a red state to go live. And I think it'll be something in the neighborhood of Texas, Arkansas, Missouri, something like that. Okay, great. Yeah, and, and that's and that's really where I, I want to you know focus on a little bit more about what's going on here in the United States. Um, you know, the term national divorce is being used a lot these days, and I don't think it's been properly defined. You know, the word divorce is extremely polarizing to people, um, but it can mean a lot of different things in terms of what transpires over the next few years, over the next decade or two. And, you know, I, I think the, um, you know, what you were doing with Colexit, you know, was bold, but, you know, you think about the, uh, the Biden campaign wargaming a potential breakoff of the West Coast uh, during 2020 debate prep against Trump. So this is something that, you know, the Democratic Party has wargamed what might happen if Trump were to win, what they would do, and that being a potential scenario. So it's not just in, you know, a certain corner of Twitter where this conversation is taking place. It's making its way, you know, into the mainstream and even in the Democratic Party. Um, and, and you see it happening in you know, in, in Eastern Oregon, with several counties wanting to break off and join greater Idaho. You see it with a few counties in Maryland wanting to join West Virginia. So this is, we're going to be hearing more and more about this. Um, what do you think about, you know, what, what does the national divorce mean from your perspective? Well, I think you're absolutely right. It's a conversation that's not just fringe anymore. It was kind of a fringe movement, at least when it comes to blue state secession in some form up until the Trump election. Because before that, you had, you know, every couple of years, you'd have the Texas nationalist movement and their uh, secession dream pop up in the news whenever a Democrat got elected president uh, or some other states, for example, would, would talk about the idea. But there was never really much of a movement when it comes to blue states doing it. It was always something that was kind of associated with the South, the Confederacy, something to that effect. And so with, when Donald Trump became elected in our small fringe movement, frankly speaking, it was fringe at the moment, uh, became mainstream. And if you recall, I was talking about earlier how we had press attention before that. It was LA Times, Sacramento Bee, some other uh, local press and state level press. And all of those articles about us were relatively soft and nice. And... Mm -hmm. I think the the general the general feeling of when you're reading those articles was like something. Look at this cute little group in California wants California to become its own independent country. Isn't that cute? Mm -hmm. Basically, that's what the stories were like, and they were fluffy and they were nice, and we were happy with them uh, because we were a fringe group and nobody took it seriously. But then Donald Trump got elected, right. and all of a sudden the tone of the news was no longer look at this cute little group in California. It was Russia, 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 right? 
And right. so there was this, I think, coordinated uh, and malicious attack on our campaign to discredit us and to defame us in the public view to associate our campaign with Russia simply because I had uh, studied in Russia and decided to go back and, and live in a country that, you know, I have ties to because I lived there and I was married to a Russian woman and I speak the language and so on and so forth. So there was a coordinated effort, I think, to discredit our campaign because it was something all of a sudden that was more of a threat to some extent, threat to the establishment, a threat to the powers that be. And uh, so I think that uh, when it comes to CalEx, I think it grew and then it started to, I guess, die off to some extent because people were scared off by the media. But had they not been, I think that would have really maybe something might have happened with that campaign. Uh, but that brings us into national divorce now, which I think is the more of the the future. I think I think the future is more about national divorce than it is about Cal exit, and I think it's more about national divorce than really any particular state secession. And the reason is because in any state that you look at, there's well, let's put it like this. When we had the first war of secession back in the Civil War, the division there between the North and the South was a lot about state pride and kind of a nationalistic view about your state. Like, I'm a citizen of South Carolina, and I'm proud of it. Not so much I'm a mm -hmm. citizen of America or the United States. The people at that time were more closely associated with the residency and the citizenship of their state than with the whole country. And... So therefore, when the states decided to separate and divide there or secede, they seceded along state lines. But now the problem that we have in the United States is not about, I think, divisions between you know Californians and Texans as a whole, but more about left and right and conservative and liberal and so on and so forth. And there are conservatives and liberals in California. And so I don't think that it really makes sense to separate the state of California and drag you know, millions of conservatives along with you who are obviously not going to want to do that. They're going to want to stay a part of the country that they're, that they love and they feel patriotic about. And so I think that CalEx, the main problem that I think that I have had with CalEx and going back a while, but of course I haven't really voiced it so much, um, is that unless the people of California are prepared to allow several counties to break off, especially those in the north and those on the east coast, or not on the east coast, but on the east eastern border of California with Nevada and Arizona, then I think it doesn't work because you're going to have people in that new country of California that are like, what, what are they going to be? They're going to be like uh, insurgents. There's going to be some kind of uh, anti-California insurgency right from the get-go. And I don't think that's a healthy formula to have, you know, a separation. And then right from the get-go, you have millions of people who hate your country. And so I think that, and they're living there and they want to go back to where they right. pulled out of. So, so I think that we need to look at a division of the country along ideological lines uh, more than state lines. I think that we need to basically look at the country, look at the continent of North America, as far as the United States territory exists and draw new lines and ignore the existing state lines. Now, it doesn't mean that I believe we can make a country that's 100% Democratic registration and 100% Republican demonstration? Of course not, because Democrats and Republicans are neighbors. But there are certainly some areas of the country that are heavily Democratic. And there are certainly some areas of the country that are more heavily Republican or conservative. And we can make mm -hmm. more or less politically homogenous countries, even though that within those countries, there'll still be people in the minority. 
And then frankly speaking, a minority is an important part of society. I don't believe in one party rule. Uh, I don't think that's a good, healthy thing for society. I think that's important for a society to have honest political opposition. So that's another reason why you wouldn't want to draw the lines in such a way where you'd have purity, ideological purity. All right. So we're not talking about that. We're just talking about we want to have people on both sides of the aisle to be able to have a country that reflects their values, generally speaking. So that if we made, for example, and I've been working on for a couple of weeks, designing a map to where I would think that these lines should be drawn, or at least a starting point of where these lines should be drawn. I'll be publishing that, I think, in the next couple of weeks, because uh, it's actually very difficult to do it, because you've got to look at a lot of different information. I mean, I'm not just saying, let's just look at where Trump voters voted red in 2020 and the Biden voters in 2020 and draw those lines. I think you've got to look at trends. You've got to look at census data. You've got to look at... Uh, you know, not only not only the voting history, not only the ideology, but these lines that you draw have to also make sense economically. And so you don't want to break right. apart, you know, economic zones, even if it goes against the general idea that you want to make ideologically homogenous countries. You still got to keep together basic economic areas so they're not divided. You don't want to draw countries that are going to split up a highway, for example, so that you're driving from. Uh, you know, Chicago to Detroit, and you're going in and out of the same country four times because, you know, one county's red and the other county's blue. You want to keep those, I think, major transportation corridors intact to the extent possible. I think it just makes sense that way. So uh, my idea of national divorce is to draw lines along ideology or draw the lines along ideology across the United States, but also keep in consideration things like economic zones, transportation, and more broader issues like just simple culture and geography. I mean, if it makes more sense to draw a border along the Mississippi River than have some counties sticking out across it, of course, I think you just draw the line across the Mississippi River because a geographic border is, I think, better than just having some randomly drawn line that is county in on the other side of the on the other side of the river, right? Regardless of the ideology, so there's a lot of things I think that need to be taken into consideration when you're drawing these new lines, and I, that's why I've been taking so long trying to draw these lines on a map of my own, which of course is not going to be the map. Right, that has to be used. Like this is my map, but we're going to use it. I'm saying it's a starting point. It's an idea, and I think that when my website is ready, people are going to be able to go on the nationalpartition.org website and draw their own lines and submit their own ideas for what they think the country should look like if we break it up into different uh, countries. And the uh, you know, with the technology today, with these uh, you know map box and and all these other. Uh, technologies with maps and things of that nature you can create a map of your own and submit it and then we can publish them on the website people will have the ability to directly participate in how they think the lines should be drawn so i'm going to be working on that instead of calex i think that it's more important to when it comes to california specifically to recognize that in california there's a pretty stark divide there between the coast of california politically speaking and the more inland areas of california so of course the lines that i draw uh, will go something along the lines of making a country that goes from, say, Los Angeles to Seattle along the coast, along the Cascades there, and separating the eastern parts of Washington, which are much more Republican and conservative, and the eastern parts of Oregon, uh, which are much more conservative than Portland, for example, and the northern and eastern parts of California, which are much more conservative than the coastal regions, and maybe connecting them with Idaho and beyond to create what's, I think you mentioned it before, this greater Idaho uh, mm -hmm. secession movement. I think that those those areas, those counties have more in common with each other uh, in Northern California, Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, and Idaho and Montana than they do with the Bay Area, for example. 
And I think that if we divide those uh, two regions by, you know, the, the Cascades there, basically, which makes sense geographically, it makes sense based on climate, it makes sense based on ideology. It keeps together basic, I think, economic zones without having too much interruption. I think you can have two countries there that uh, will have on one end a very liberal kind of progressive uh, mentality. They're going to care about the environment. They're going to care about, you know, progressive civil right issues and things of that nature that the liberals do. And then on the other, on the other side of those mountains, you're going to have a more conservative country that they'll care more about protecting the civil liberties, which I think are different from civil rights, civil liberties, like having the right to have bare arms, for example, right. Uh, as a civil liberty, not a civil right, I think. Uh, other things when it comes to, you know, developing the logging industry or other or hunting rights and things of that nature, because that's going to make sense for those regions. And so I, I'm looking at drawing the lines in, in that way, where we draw the lines on over overarching mission is to divide along ideological lines, but also take into consideration economic issues as well. Yeah, that's great. You know, um, I remember, you know, seeing the exit polls by county you know, for 2020, and you look at 85 plus percent of the land area uh, by county was red. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, I, I think, you know, you're, you're thinking about it the right way. It's, it's not about state boundaries. It's about more of by counties. And then you've got to find a way to, you know, make sense of, you know, trade routes, yeah. uh, travel, that type of thing. You know, what resources are available? Um, okay. I just got a note here real quick. So I, I want to ask, so when people hear this kind of thing and they say, look, if there were ever a national divorce of any kind, but let's just say, you know, based on what you're proposing, you know, you've got that sliver right along the coast of California going up into Oregon and Washington, and then maybe you've got parts of the Northeast, you know, it, it's pretty difficult to tie all these things together. But specifically on the West Coast, you would have China looking to do a deal with whatever that new country is called in like two seconds flat, you know, wanting to fund them buy that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got Chinese military bases on the West coast of the United, or what was formerly the United States. And you've got a whole different battle to fight. I think people are coming around to wanting to see some kind of separation and distance from people that they're ideologically not compatible with. And I don't know that's not going to go away. But in terms of a, a real separation, what do you think about that argument that, hey, if, if this actually happens, China's here in two seconds and so is everybody else? Yeah, I, I don't agree with it necessarily. And I, and I think I don't agree with it because it happens to be that the West Coast, the sliver that we're talking about, is a liberal progressive or would be a liberal progressive country. And they're going to have a lot of complaints about Chinese uh, civil rights issues. And things of that nature. And I don't think that they're going to be willing to make deals with the Chinese government as long as they're not taking care of civil rights in China, for example. I think that they're going to hold that over them. I think they're going to be challenging China more than the United States does as a whole to say, hey, we're not going to be doing trade deals with China until they do X, Y, and Z with the environment, with their carbon emissions, because they're one of the biggest polluters of the planet, China. They have the most people. They got the factory. They're still in the industrial right. age. <laughs> so we're talking about being able to hold the environmental pollution over them, hold their civil rights, abominable civil rights issues over them. And I don't see that this government of the West Coast, which is going to be this this uh, you know happy come by, come by country of civil rights and you know 
and, and Cascadia with the with the ecology and environment is just going to open up their arms to China so much. I think that we already have in this country, as you mentioned, uh, something along the lines of China, you know, funding things and buying property. They're already doing that to, to a great extent. The Chinese own a lot of property in the United States and an right. increasing extent. So I don't think that that's necessarily going to change. But when it comes to, I think that the, the heart of the question was, is it going to be basically a Chinese ally on the West Coast? Uh, with Chinese Navy docking in LA port. I don't think that's the case. And I think it's not the case unless China all of a sudden became some left-wing progressive uh, country like they would be. I don't think that you would see that because we see what uh, the people of California and the government says now about countries that they don't agree with. They, 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 they criticize Russia for its civil rights issues. Uh, They, you know, I don't, I think that you'll have trade deals like they, because they're going to sell strawberries in China or something like that. Uh, but I don't think that you're, they're going to welcome the Chinese fleet into into the port of Los Angeles because of those issues when it comes to their economy. Or I'm sorry, not their economy, their environmental issues and uh, their civil rights issues. And I think also that this idea of divorce, I think that one of the major benefits of the divorce is, as we see with people or individuals who get divorced, after the divorce, people tend to have better relationships with the person from whom they got divorced. I think it's not across the board that way, but in many cases, people who are in a troubled marriage, after divorce, they can maintain a more friendly, cordial relationship. And so I think that's the case in North America, that right now people are at each other's throats. There's an increasing amount of political violence in our streets, and I think it's going to continue to get worse before it gets better. But I think that if we can have that national divorce where we can separate the left and the right to the extent possible, then I think that because we're out of each other's hair and we're not interfering with each other's domestic affairs, for example, the people of the red states or red countries are not uh, restricting abortion access in the blue countries, and the people in the blue countries are not restricting gun rights in the red countries and so on and so forth on a host of different issues. I think that because those issues will no longer be a problem, that the hostility and the animosity will decrease between the peoples of the of the continent, between the Americans, basically. And so I think that it's possible because of that, that there could be good relations between the red and the blue countries in North America and even create maybe something like the European Union, where these are independent countries, but they still have some kind of we, we're still Americans. We still have a bond that goes back hundreds of years and a cultural bond and connections. It doesn't mean that we have a national divorce and all of a sudden we hate each other. We hate each other now, and that's why we need the national divorce, with the hope that the divorce allows us to improve relationships afterwards. And because of that improved relationship afterwards, I am very hopeful that you know this, this West Coast country that I'm envisioning from Los Angeles to Seattle could be very friendly with and trade with and work with and communicate with the people of Texas and the Midland areas of the country and create something like the European Union where we're going to say, okay, we're separate, but we're no longer in each other and we're no longer in each other's hair, but we're still going to work together. We're still going to, you know, we're still family in that respect. So I I don't, I I disregard that idea about the, you know, foreign countries coming into North America and trying to take over because I think that relationships will improve as a result of the national divorce. And it will bring Americans closer together because we're not going to be at each other's throats and we're not going to be taking away somebody's rights here or there. And I think that's going to create a better situation in North America overall. Yeah. I mean, that's an, that's an interesting perspective. You know, if there were an easy way of doing it, I think people would absolutely be for the issue I see is 
the American government and the institutions that control the country simply wouldn't allow for it um, easily because it's a consumer economy and they look at American citizens as as soldiers, as widgets, as workers, and they wouldn't want to jeopardize their system in terms of if you have a country of, you know, 200 million people living in blue areas and then you've got, you know, 140 or so living in red, you know, in, in, in an entirely new economic structure, that would be there I don't see them letting that happen so even if people really want it these people will be will be in the way so I want to ask you if this is to happen what do you think is a natural course of events in terms of what what would need to happen and what does a timeline look like for this to manifest well I, I know think, that's a really tough one yeah, but I'm just curious to yeah sure hear what you think I think first happen. I would say because you were talking a lot about how even if the people wanted it you know, the government wouldn't allow it to happen. And I think that that demonstrates why it should happen. Because if if, if we recall, it's supposed to be a government of, by, and for the people. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be, right? Call me an idealist. Right. But if the people want something, that desire should be reflected in the government. That's not the case. I think that you and I would agree with that. That's not the case. But it should be that way. And that's the way the country was supposed to be when it was founded. Of, by, and for the people means that the government, because they're elected by the people, represent the people's desire in government. And so right. because that's not the case, I think that demonstrates the fact that the government that we have today is not reflective of the government that was intended for us to have. And when that happens, when the government that, let's say, governs the people, for lack of a better word, uh, no longer lives up to that ideal, I think that the Declaration of Independence tells people it's time for them to abolish that government. And uh, now, how you go about doing that is another question for another podcast. You know, I'm not calling up some civil war right now. I'm not calling for political violence against the government. But I think that there are peaceful revolutions that have happened in history. For example, the Velvet Revolution, which is I, I like to point to, was the peaceful separation of Slovakia and, and, Czech, and the Czech Republic. There used to be the you know Czechoslovakia, and now it's the Czech Republic and Slovakia. That happened peacefully, and it happened in Central Europe. So we're not talking about some small island in the middle Pacific nobody's ever heard of. And we're talking about a Central European country in our lifetime. It happened in 1991 or 1993, I, I don't recall. But early 1990s, in our lifetime, Central Europe, two countries were created from one. And it was done peacefully. And I think that that can be done in North America as well. And now when it comes to the answering the question more directly, I think, so you were asking what needs to happen. I think that what needs to happen is happening. And uh, in, in increasingly or let's say a worsening political stability and worsening, or let's say more and more political violence is happening. Of course, that's not something that we're, you know, want to happen. But I think that if you look at the statistics, you can see that political violence in the United States or politically motivated violence in the United States over the last 10 years is more than double what it was the 10 years prior to that. And so I think you can see that the statistics show Political violence is on the rise. I think it's going to continue to rise because I think it's something, you know, when when you when you hurt somebody, the natural response is they want to hurt you back. And so violence is not something that's just going to go away by itself. I think it's going to have to get to a point where it's, well, I'm not saying it has to get to a point. I'm saying it's going to get to a point where it's going to boil over. And there's just going to be more and more open fighting on the streets based on uh, ideology. You can see that now. In the United States, we have armed groups out there who go to their protests with their weapons now. Uh, 
if I recall correctly, I think it's like the Oath Keepers. They might go to their protests with guns and open carry. I saw mm-hmm. that there was some uh, some groups that were marching like like paramilitary troops with the Black Lives Matter and the Antifa things. I've I've seen them as well. So you have it on both sides, armed groups. Uh, what's going to happen is eventually they're going to be some protest and a counter protest and somebody's going to get shot. In fact, they have already. And it's going to, there's going to be a response and the police are going to be in the middle of it. <laughs> it's going to be a disaster. And that's why we want to have the national divorce to avoid that disaster. Let's recognize that things are going to get worse unless we can do something drastic to change course. And yes, I understand that CalEx is kind of this idea that, oh, it's so difficult. How can you make it happen? You know, the government has to do this. The government has to do that. And same thing with national divorce. But I think that the more and more uh, political violence that we see on the streets, the more and more likely that this is going to happen. Because I think you've seen now. I mean, look at, for example, you might call uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, kind of a radical. But the fact that there are members of Congress who have even kind of even in a joking manner brought up the topic of national divorce, I think mm-hmm. speaks volumes because of the, the uh, you said that the government has to act. Well, she's a member of the government. She's one. And if yes. the direction and the trend of the country is such where people who are of her mentality are getting elected to Congress, what's to say that in 10 years from now, there's not going to be 20 of them elected to Congress, 20 Donald Trumps who, you know, something like that in Congress. So I think that that idea might might be possible with more time because people are going to get sick of, uh, as we see now, uh, you know, the, the conservatives and the Republicans and the Trump supporters are sick of the moderate Republicans, right? I saw on Twitter, somebody was asking, how in the hell did John McCain get the nomination in 2008? That's how far we've gone. Where right now, the, right. the Republican Party doesn't even understand how, what was it, 15 years ago? Somebody like John McCain, a war hero. And I don't like John McCain because I'm a Trump lawyer. <laughs> I can understand that question. Right. But I'm just saying the question is out there. Like, how far have we gone since 2008 where it's not even really fathomable that somebody like John McCain could become the nominee of the Republican Party? And I think that you're going to see that same thing on the Democratic side. So I think that nobody can really dispute the fact that the two sides are separating more and more. And that as that happens, there's going to be uh, more radicalization, more extremism in both sides. And then what's left is to elect those extremists, so to speak, uh, to Congress. And then you're going to have two sides of Congress, both the liberal and the Democratic side and the Republican and the conservative side saying that we don't want to share a country with each other. And maybe they'll just come to the table one final time and make it happen. Who knows? Uh, so I, I think it's, you know, of course, it's a, it's not going to be something that's going to happen today or tomorrow or that's going to be easy. But I think that anything that's worth doing is difficult. And requires effort. And I think that that's why we should uh, go forward with this effort. And I, and I like to quote, for example, uh, one of my favorite presidents who quoted someone else. I don't remember offhand who it was. But he said uh, something along the lines of, uh, there is a story of a, of a French gardener who wanted to plant a tree. And uh, someone told him that, why are you going to plant this tree? It'll take 100 years for that tree to stand and be visible so you could take advantage of his beautiful view or something to that effect and that's when the gardener said that's why we need to plant it today because even if i'm not around to see this tree my children will and they will benefit from that tree 
So I think that we need to plant the seed for national divorce now so that even if in 10 or 20 years from now it becomes possible, it became possible then because we started talking about it now. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think there's also a type of person on, on either side that is intrigued by this idea. You know, I've, I've got some friends, you know, we're, we are the base brotherhood. So I think you have a good understanding as to where we, you know, tend to lean. But, you know, I've got friends that are more to the left that um, like, yes, national divorce, we need to be separated. They totally agree. I don't talk to them as much these days, but I think there are, particularly amongst younger people, they recognize that there are irreconcilable differences that are going to be almost impossible to bridge this chasm. Now, if you talk to older people, you know, let's use the term boomer as a pejorative term, yeah. you know, more than descriptive of a particular generation, Sure. but people that look at, and they grew up in that, uh, you know, wonderful America back in the seventies, eighties into the, and they look at what's happened and they're horrified by it or disturbed, but they just can't break away from, we have to keep this country as is, uh, we, we, no matter what it takes, we have to keep it together. So there is, there does seem to be something that, you know, with, with age and perspective that can be a little bit of a challenge. Have you noticed that as well? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's really one of the important aspects of it because uh, there is within the older generations, this kind of nostalgia about America. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, the greatest country in the world, how can we let it break apart? Well, you know, the same thing could have been said about the Roman Empire, but it also fell apart. So, so countries and empires rise and fall. The question is, how long do they last and whether or not the United States is on the decline? And I know that I've seen a study before that said that empires on average last about 250 years before they start declining. Right. And the United States now, I think, is in year 247 or 246. And so we're getting right about the average mm -hmm. length of an empire and happens to be that right now we're also talking more and more about breaking up the country. So I don't think that those two things are coincidental. Uh, of course, it's not going to say that you know we have to follow the average and we're going to be at 250, but I think it just shows the trend. The things in this country are falling apart more and more. We happen also to be, coincidentally speaking, at the average age of an empire. And we're also talking right now, separately from that, uh, about national divorce. What I mean by that is nobody said, Countries tend to fall apart around 250 years, so let's start talking about national divorce. No, we're talking about national divorce, and then I can talk about the fact that countries or empires start to deteriorate and decline at about 250 years of age, uh, separate of that issue. So it's kind of coincidental, right? But I think that it's important to point right. that out. And now when it comes to you were talking about the age groups, I think it's important because time goes on, and it's not going to stop. And with time, those people will no longer be on the planet. And uh, they'll be replaced by the youth, who you mentioned, are more supportive of this idea. And so even if you talk about just generational change, what's going to happen in, let's say, 40 years from now, when the people who are 20 and 30 years old, like myself, 35, who are supportive of this idea are now the senior citizens. And they're supportive of the idea in large numbers. And they happen to be the largest voting bloc. And if they're supportive of national divorce when they're 50 and 60 and 70 years old, what are their children going to believe? They've been listening for 20 years about their parents saying the country needs to be broken apart. You know, so I think that you, you, it's the same argument that, that like the liberal and progressive groups have always made about civil rights campaigns that they've had. 
whether it be marriage equality or the transgender issue or whatever else. It started back, what, the 60s and 70s? They were radicals. They were crazies. They were sick and mentally mentally deprived, and they were had mentally handicaps and so on and so forth. That was back then when they when they considered uh, you know homosexuality a mental disorder. I'm not saying it is now. I'm simply saying that back then there was a time when homosexuality was considered a mental disorder, and now it's not. And it's not because people's minds have changed on the issue, and it's become more of a normalized uh, orientation, sexually speaking. And so society accepts that now. And I think that's the same thing that is going to be with things like secession and national divorce, that as it gets discussed more and more, as the generations uh, die off, I guess, <laughs> such a cruel way to say it, uh, and are replaced by the younger groups who support national divorce, more and more, just mathematically speaking, you're going to have more and more people who are supporting the idea as time goes on. It's not like it's the opposite, where you have you know, the the older generation say, let's break up the country. We need a national divorce. And everyone, the, the young people are saying, no, it's such a great country. Let's keep it together. You know, it's the opposite. So if it was that way, then we'd be in trouble because the next generation of people would be opposed to that idea. But nobody, I don't think that anybody, and I've, I've yet to find anybody who can answer the question is, why should the United States remain together? Like, what is the United States, like people say, for example, we can't break apart, but Why? Why is it that you want to keep the United States together? Why is it that you support the federal government? And I don't think that I really can ever answer that question, that the federal government works so effectively and so efficiently that you want to continue to support it. I, I just don't see anybody can really answer that question. The, the answers that I, that I hear in response to things like, let's break up the country, is typically something like, we can't do that because of, for example, China, right? Like you mentioned earlier. I'm not saying that you were supporting that position. You're answer, asking the question. But people often ask, we can't break up the country because Russia wants that to happen, right? We can't break up the country because China wants that to happen. Their answer, very interestingly, is not, we can't break up the country because the country is doing so well. We can't break up the country because the government works. We can't break up the country because yeah. we love each other and we're so connected and everything is great. It's not, that's never the question. It's always something exterior right. to that. China, Russia, or something along those lines. And I think that's very telling because if things were so great in this country as to warrant staying together, then their answers should be, let's not break up the country because let me give you a list of reasons why the country is doing so well right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and now that that term has been introduced into the nomenclature and into our lexicon, it, it's going to have more um, definitions, more specifics that are going to be tied into it as things. Because So it's really opening Pandora's box. Once that gets out, um, <laughs> it's going to take on a life of its own. So I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, what's going on in Russia and the, in the Ukraine right now. Um, I would assume you're you know, way more up to speed as to what's happening than most people. Yeah, because, you know, it, it is confusing, you know, understanding, you know, all of the media here, we're in a deluge of Putin's going to go take Ukraine and what are we going to do about it? Um, would you give us a little bit of an understanding as to what is happening right now with Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, sure. It's, of course, very complicated. Uh and I think that it's important to 
first point out that Ukraine and Russia have a common historical root. Uh, they Russia, let's say very simplified terms, Russia uh, is a country that exists because people migrated from the land that is Ukraine to kind of form a new country, right? Something, something along those lines. It's a very simplified version. Historians will probably murder me for that explanation. But basically there was a country and it was based in the city of Kiev and some people left that area and they created a new country and it's called Russia. They come from a common root. They're Slavic. They, they have, they look the same. They speak a similar language. They have very connected culture and history. Uh, so from that point of view, it's important to recognize that Putin uh, considers Ukraine and Russia, well, let's say Ukrainians and Russians as one people. And it's an important backdrop because you're not talking about like, you know, you know, like, like Russia and Mongolia, something like that. You're talking about two countries mm -hmm. that have a very deep common history and culture that's connected to each other and, and, and trace their roots back to the same place. Uh, and so from that point of view, Russia wants, I think, and Putin, let's say, let's say Putin. When I say Russia, if I say Russia, I mean Putin. Because uh, those are two different things. But Putin wants to reconstruct the Russian Empire. And so naturally mm -hmm. he would want to unite, let's say, generally speaking, unite the Russian people. And he considers, I think, the Ukrainians to be basically a form of the Russian people. The same thing like he would say about the Belarusia, Belarus, Belarus. How do you say it in English? Belarus. <laughs> Belarus. Yeah. I'm, I'm used yeah. to speaking Russian about Belarus. Belarus. Um, same thing with them. They're also uh, the same basic uh, connection there, ethnically speaking, uh, language similar, so on and so forth. In fact, Russia and Belarus have what's called the United uh, State Agreement, where Russians and uh, Belarusians can travel to and from with their without uh, foreign passports and things of that. There's a lot of there's a lot of like connections there. In fact, there's a lot of talk, talk about the fact that Belarus will voluntarily join back with Russia like to cease to exist as a country and just rejoin Russia. Directly south of that is Ukraine. Now, they are opposed to that idea. They are more Western-friendly. They're talking about potentially joining NATO at some point in time, uh, and so on and so forth. So they don't want to do the voluntary route, as Putin would like. That's why Putin now is, or not, let's, say, say Putin, let's say people are talking about how Putin would like to install a pro-Western government in Kiev uh, so that they could pursue the reunification of these lands more, you know, through voluntary association, like Belarus is doing. But that's not going to happen, I don't think. Uh, but there is a large portion of the population in Ukraine that is pro-Russia. So it's not like if they install a pro-Russian government there that it would, nobody would support it. There would be a, a, a large, sizable population that would support the Russian government there, or the pro-Russian government, let's say. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, uh, that's what's going on in the background. So Putin wants to reunite, basically, I think, the Russian Empire, uh, that's, that's why I think you saw recently with this Kazakhstan thing, uh, they sent mm -hmm. troops into Kazakhstan right away because if Kazakhstan were to fall to some kind of, you know, government that was opposed to Putin, that would be counterproductive to his objective, uh, of you, of, of, of expanding the Russian empire type thing. Uh, and, and so that demonstrated that if something happens in Kazakhstan, Russia is going to send troops there to maintain order and to maintain, uh, you know, to protect the regime there. Uh, same thing with, with, we saw that it happened in Belarus when there were the protests there a couple of years ago. 
mm-hmm. by the way, Lukashenko is uh, an illegitimate president, but he's still there because he had military support and he had a very, let's say, rough uh, handling of the peaceful protesters in Belarus. And he shut them down, unfortunately. But the fact of the matter is that those countries around Russia exist today because Russia supports them. Ukraine is going in the other direction because they want to join NATO and the European Union and so on and so forth. Uh, But Ukraine is made up of many ethnic Russian-speaking Russians. And so he doesn't like that idea. Putin doesn't like that idea. He wants Ukraine to be like Belarus and Kazakhstan and to be a Soviet satellite or, let's say, a Russian satellite uh, or maybe even join Russia outright. Uh, so that's the, the, the background in general. I think that, however, where my opinion on this issue differs from what people are hearing in the news is about the motivation behind this particular attack that's coming up now as opposed to in a year from now or two years from now. And I think it's really, you have to look more into domestic internal politics in Russia more than this question about NATO, because there's a lot of talk in the news about, you know, Russia's concerned about Ukraine joining NATO, and therefore they want to attack Ukraine before that happens, uh, and so on and so forth. That's true to an extent, but nobody is, Ukraine is not joining NATO anytime soon. It's not like it's going to happen in March and Putin's going to decide, well, am I going to take Ukraine now or am I, or never. It's not like a now or never type situation for Putin. Uh, there's no pending uh, application for membership in NATO and so on and so forth, and the process would be long. So there's not a now or never type of event going on with Ukraine. So why is it a why is there a, the potential for a Russian invasion happening now? And I think that that is because Putin is up for re-election in 2024. This will be his opportunity to serve two more terms that will allow him to stay president until 2036. And he's been president since 2000, basically, except for one term in the middle there with uh, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, which was really just a game of musical chairs, but it's a a different topic. Right. But Mm -hmm. the point is that he has always, let's say, quote unquote, won these elections with massive uh, victories. Uh, In 2012, he won with like 64, 65% of the vote. Uh, In 2018, he won with like almost 80% of the vote, just completely blowing everybody out of the park. Not to say that he legitimately won those percentages, but that's the official number, right? And so if you look at that and you look at Putin's official approval ratings right now, they're actually in the low 60s, which is actually a low point for him. Uh, Which, I mean, think about it like this. If the the government-sponsored approval ratings have Putin in 60 you got to think he's probably much lower than that, right? <laughs> They're probably propping him up to some extent, but that's as best as they can do. So they realize that Putin's probably lost a lot of popularity. Not that he won't win in 2024 as a result of that, but he has to win with a number that's at least plausible. So if his approval ratings are in the 60s, he can't win with 90% of the vote. It's like, where did you get the other 30%, right? right? So it has to be somewhere in the ballpark. And... If you go back to the 2012 election when he won with 64, 65% of the vote and 2018, he won with 78 or 79% of the vote. What happened between that that boosted his popularity? He annexed Crimea in Ukraine. 
And as a result of that, the people of Russia had this patriotic mentality. Oh, we won a war. We're re rejoining the Russian Empire and the people and so on and so forth. So it really kind of grew his popularity. That happened in 2014, by the way. So four years later, his popularity was high enough where he could say he won 78% of the vote. So now in two years from now, he has a presidential election. His approval ratings right now are 60%. If he goes in and wins in 2024 with 60% of the vote, because it has to be somewhat related to the approval rating to some extent, he's going to have to acknowledge that he lost 20% of the population's support. He's not ready to do that. He's not going to say he won, but he still lost 20% of the vote that he did from the last time around. So what could he do between now and 2024 that could boost his approval rating like it did historically not too long ago? Well, he could invade Ukraine and he can reunite the Russian people and the, the nationalistic uh, fervor and the patriotism and so on and so forth. And I think that if he were to do that, he would see for the next couple of years a boost in his popularity among those people who are the, you know, the Russian nationalists and the people like that. And so I think that that's what's happening. I think he's recognizing that uh, I need a boost in, uh, to demonstrate that I have a strong grasp on Russia because technically speaking, he shouldn't be president anymore. And they've amended the Constitution twice in order to allow him to keep being president. And the amendments that they made were controversial and undemocratic. So really, he shouldn't be president now. So in order for him to maintain his presidency, he not only needs to win those elections, but needs to win them in such a way where it demonstrates, oh, I have 80% of the vote. Of course, I'm going to be president. The country loves me. right? He can't be president mm -hmm. 20 years down the road and getting 52% of the vote. So he needs those massive victories, even if they're not real. He needs to be able to present massive victories in order to have any kind of legitimacy in the world stage. And those are not possible unless his approval ratings start going up. And that, I think, is only possible uh, if he does something that causes the people of Russia to feel a sense of patriotism once again. And I think that's where you're going to have this invasion of Ukraine happening in the next couple of weeks. No, that, that's, a, that's great. Thanks for giving us the rundown there. So I, I've got a couple questions for you. Why is his support waning compared to where it used to be? What's going on where he's losing 15, 20% of his, of his traditional support? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of different things there. And I think to some extent it ties back into what we were, we were talking about before with demographics. Uh, Putin, don't forget, is a former KGB guy. And so his base of support are really the people who are nostalgic about the greatness of the Soviet Union. Uh, mm -hmm. But those people are fewer and fewer every day, right? Because they're, they're older and they're dying. So I think that that's playing into it to some extent because he's not getting new support from the youth like we were talking about before. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, there are some, of course. There are the skinheads there and the nationalists there and so on and so forth. But that's not the majority of the Russian population. Majority of the Russian population actually is apathetic to politics simply because they don't believe in the system, which I think is clear why they don't believe in the system because you have the same president for 20 years, but they don't believe in the system. They don't believe that their <laughs> votes could change anything and so on and so forth. So they're very apathetic. So it's not like you have like this middle class and this middle-aged Russians who are like actively involved in politics and Putin keeps winning. They just don't care and they don't vote because they don't believe in it. So that leaves the only people to vote are the people who like Putin. And so that's why he's winning these elections, because the rest of them are basically amounting to a boycott, as well as well basically is, unofficially a boycott. Not like an organized boycott, but just officially nobody's voting except for the supporters of Putin, so he keeps winning with these great numbers. Plus, the he throws in his own ballots, too. So I think that uh, why has he lost support? He's lost support because these public opinion polls are done over the phone or or 
or in parking lots or, or shopping centers and, you know, on a clipboard and people there could, could, can express to some extent they don't support Putin uh, without having to go vote in a system that they don't believe in. I think that they have better faith in the legitimacy of the public opinion poll than they do in the actual election poll. So they're more willing to go out there and say, or answer the phone, answer the question, say they don't approve of the job that Putin is doing. So I think his numbers are falling because more Russians are actually expressing their opinion uh, in the public opinion polls than in the actual elections, if you get what I mean. Uh, and so from that context, you have to accept the fact that why Russians are losing support for Putin. It's not just because he's been president for the last 20 years, but also there's been significant, there's a pandemic. Let's not forget about the pandemic. People in Russia, I think, mm -hmm. are very different from many Americans with respect to the pandemic because uh, they don't care so much about it. Like, they're not scared of it to the same extent that Americans were and many of the countries of the world were in the beginning. I think that more and more, as we see now, more and more people around the world are coming to adopt that same mentality that Russia's had the whole time. But because people are getting sick of the mask, they're not believing the vaccines and so on and so forth, right? But in the beginning, though, there was hysteria, whereas in Russia, there wasn't that hysteria. People didn't really care about it so much. And regardless of that, there were still the uh, restrictions, right, uh, on public life, going outside with a QR code, going to restaurants, QR codes, wearing masks, wearing gloves, um, take it, you know, when the elections are coming up, all of a sudden things are getting better. Oh, you don't have to wear your mask or gloves anymore. Things are getting better. Look how good the government's going. And then the week after the election, oh, the situation with COVID is getting worse. We need to put our masks and gloves back on. That's absolute brazen gall is what it was. I mean, absolutely embarrassing. And we, we, one thing, if you like waited a little while, but it was like the week after the election, all of a sudden things are getting worse. You got to put your masks and gloves back on and put your restrictions back in place. Absolute ridiculousness. And, and people were seeing that and they couldn't go. They were losing their jobs because they couldn't work in the restaurants or the, their businesses were closing. Some of the same problems that we saw in California, for example, with the lockdowns. Uh, people in Russia mm -hmm. didn't like that. And public opinion, to a large extent, was able to impact whether or not those restrictions were in place because people were protesting them. And so I think that the pandemic plays a role with that. People are sick of that. People are sick of the restrictions. It's a cold, gray, snowy, dark country. And people in Russia really like to go travel to places like Turkey and Greece and Italy and the Maldives and uh, anywhere where there's a sun and a beach, basically. And they couldn't do that for the time period of the pandemic because the borders were closed. And yet Russians didn't understand, uh, you know, why the borders closed because, you know, Look at these rich people from Russia. They're going somewhere. And so I think there was a lot of problems with like hypocrisy with the with the mm -hmm. COVID restrictions and the fact that people were losing their jobs, losing their businesses and inconveniences. Um, you know, just the simple things like I remember one case when I was in Moscow and the government made a big deal about, oh, we're, well, there's a new restriction about going in the public metro subway system. Uh, we're going to be checking people's temperatures, right? This is Moscow. It's 15 million people there. Can you imagine the line of people waiting to get into the metro that morning when when they were checking everybody's in temperatures individually, <laughs> and they didn't even they didn't even like foresee that problem? As the people are trying to go to work that morning, and there's a lines for like a mile just to get into the metro system. The next day, they were no longer checking temperatures. <laughs> it was that was so funny. Right. The next day, and so people were just fed up with that type of uh, like, why are you more concerned about the pandemic than everybody else? And then there's this more recently, there's this like pressure campaign for vaccines. 
pressure campaign for uh, the other thing. What are they doing? I forget the. Um, I, I forget what it is, but um, I think that people were going to stick with that. And then you could talk on top of that the cracks down that are happening with respect to civil rights and civil liberties in Russia in the upcoming, you know, the upcoming time period to- before the 2024 presidential election. The Putin regime is really cracking down on civil liberties, which really comes into kind of why I decided to leave because I wasn't going to be a part of that nonsense. And, and I'm also not somebody who is very good at keeping their mouth shut. And I was in a position <laughs> where, where uh, I'm starting, you're even starting to turn me like I'm, I like Russia and I came here because I, I like some of the things about the Russian government, but now I'm starting to see this, this is a bunch of nonsense. And so I'm like, I'm not going to come here and I have a kid now, 11 months old. I'm not going to go out and protest something because I know I would and then get arrested and deported or something like that. Right. So I'm like, nah, this is, things are going in the wrong direction. And I think we just go back home now. So uh, there's a lot of crackdowns on civil li- civil liberties there when it comes to uh, freedom of assembly, uh, which is guaranteed in the Constitution of Russia. They don't allow even a, a single person to go with a sign somewhere and stand there on the street, not, not causing any problem just to stand there. You get, you get escorted away immediately. Uh, that's a freedom of assembly issue. Freedom of press mm-hmm. with journalists who have been framed uh, for things like like drug trafficking by them like planting drugs and narcotics in their backpacks and things like that uh, because they're going to um, uh, expose some kind of corruption in the Russian government. That's I saw that a number of different times. There's the situation surrounding Alexei Navalny, who's not a national hero, so to speak, but he's certainly a martyr now. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. everyone understood that, you know, he, whether or not he was poisoned is another question, but, he came to Russia and he was arrested at the border. What, what, what exactly did he do to cause him to get arrested? He got sick, whether it was poisoning or not, he got sick and was transported to Germany. And he was in Germany, uh, healing there for several months. And then he came back home. What is it that he did to cause him to be arrested? He he blamed the Russian government for poisoning him. Well, that's a freedom of speech issue. He could say that. It doesn't warn him getting arrested because he blamed the Russian government for poisoning him. And um, so I think that that's an issue. And also if you uh, acknowledge that with Navalny, he is in prison now. And the reason that they are, he's in prison is because he violated his parole. That was like the official thing. So the answer to my question is why would he get arrested at the war? Well, they found a reason that he violated his parole. That's why he got arrested. Uh, well, he violated his parole. Why did he violate his parole? Because he was in a coma in Germany. And so you know, they just found whatever reason they could to put him in jail because he's a political opponent. He was in a coma. Mm-hmm. I think any normal country in the world who's dealing with somebody who's on parole would acknowledge that, okay, this parolee was in a coma and flown to another country and was there recuperating or rehealing for several months and once he got better, who returned home, I don't think that that would necessarily qualify as a parole violation. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a criminal criminal <laughs> justice person. I just don't think, I certainly hope that that wouldn't be the case in, in, a, in another country, that they would recognize that kind of exception to the situation. And then you can even take it back even further by asking, well, why is he a parolee? And that gets into the, that gets into the, the trumped up charges he had against them 10 years ago, where he was found guilty of some kind of embezzlement and fraud or something to that effect. 
but it was just trumped up charges. And the European court and, and a bunch of other uh, international like justice organizations have called it out as, as a as a trumped up charges in a false court and so on and so forth. They've ordered him to be released and so on and so forth. So he is in prison now, long story short, for violating parole on charges that were trumped up and shouldn't have been charged in the first place. And so it's, I mean, that's what we're dealing with. You're dealing with a government that's, that's, that's now willing to take those measures against a political opponent who before his arrest was, was a fringe political element. It wasn't like somebody that like had a legitimate chance of being elected president, even I think even a fair election. Uh, even if it was a fair democratic election. What does that election. say whenever someone's, whenever someone's willing to do that to somebody that's not a real threat? I mean, what does that say about the mentality? I think they just want to shut it down. They want to, they want to use fear to prevent anybody else from trying to stand up and doing something. And that's why, for example, Alex, Alexei Navalny was the leader or founder of the, uh, I guess in English it would be called the Anti-Corruption Fund of Russia. And now that organization, which was an organization that made videos on YouTube exposing Russian politicians and their corruption, is now branded a terrorist organization. And association with that terrorist organization, association like membership, comes with a prison sentence. So all of the whole network of people that supported Navalny are now either have run abroad, several of them have gone to like Lithuania and Estonia, other countries, uh, or other or they're on the run in Russia because they were associated with it. And, it, and it counts retroactively is even the worst part. It's like you're a member of this organization, it's in good standing, and then the government declares it a terrorist organization, and then you get in trouble for being a part of that terror. It's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Retroactively, which is brazen gall is what it is. And and then uh, there's also the point with these people in uh, this group, like donors who didn't even actively participate, but simply they sent $20 or $30 on the Donate Now button on their website sometime in history are now also potentially liable for funding terrorist organizations. Oh, wow. So they are just mm. ramping down the crackdowns like I've never seen. And uh, so I think that people in Russia see that. And um, I think all the, I mean, I've, I've been probably rambling for about 20 minutes now about it, but there's just so many different things that have been going on over, over the last five years since I went there that I think is taking a toll on Putin's popularity. When's the last time you've been to Russia? Oh, I, I left there seven weeks ago. Uh, December, okay. so, so, you know, you're, you're speaking candidly about the situation there, your experience. Um, it, let's say that this interview goes viral and hundreds of thousands, millions of people view it. Could you get in trouble for giving this kind of critique or not really? Probably not. Well, I mean, uh, I'm in Turkey now, so I would hope that Turkey wouldn't allow, you know, wouldn't wouldn't extradite me to Russia if they <laughs> if they yeah. asked well let's, let's say you go back to Russia uh, like in a few months from now for some reason is there any chance that you know people are gonna question you like take you somewhere and question you I mean I, I guess what I'm asking is what does freedom of speech look like in Russia I would is certainly something that I, you, I mean I don't know I mean I would feel somewhat cautious about going back to Russia if this were to, I mean, go viral, like you were saying, and everyone around the world knew about it. But I mean, if it was so viral where like it was a world story, right. And it was like caused attention. Uh, 
then I would be concerned maybe about going to Russia. But if it was, you know, even if it was like a national story, like in the United States, like look at the Calyxa guy. He went to Russia and decided to come back. Listen to his story. Why? The, that type of propaganda story. I don't think necessarily because it would be limited to Americans who already have that opinion of Russia anyway. So I, I think it was some kind of major global level where it kind of embarrassed Russia in some way. Uh, amongst right. people who don't have an anti-Russian opinion, then I would maybe feel cautious about going back there. But not that I would be arrested or something like that, but you are a foreigner and they can find a reason to stop you or whatever. Like they have already. There are a couple of Americans there now who are being held in prison there as pawns for political trade in the future. And so I think that they could find something for me. And I always thought about it, frankly speaking, because, you know, I was, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think about my five years in Russia. What have I ever done there that maybe they could try to use as excuse to stop me for something? And I'm like, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the one guy that is in uh, prison there now, I think his name is uh, Waylon. I forget his first name. Uh, Paul, Paul Waylon. He supposedly had a flash drive that had state secrets on it. Now, whether or not he, he, he d denies that he had the flash drive, but if it's something that simple where they could come up to me and say, we found this flash drive in your backpack and it has state secrets on it and you're going to jail now for 10 years, then the bar for that is not very high. They can just drop that in your your backpack so yeah and, and the trial there wouldn't be fair and open and so on and so forth and so you would have no chance to win that and that's why paul whalen is uh behind bars now but also i was thinking about even more like i don't know it's like i was working in schools uh with uh elementary schools and i was somewhat concerned about something what if they ever wanted to say that you know like i did something with some kid or something like that i mean i mean it's like I've seen the stories of, because there are, I mean, I've seen stories of foreigners traveling to Russia to be teachers and then getting arrested for doing inappropriate things with, with young students there. And I've mm. seen those stories when I was living there. And so now I, here I am as an English teacher in Russia. I'm like, Holy, what, what, what if they ever even claimed that I was, you know, doing something with some student or whatever. I think that it just was, an, uh, for example, the fact that I was a teacher and I was working in elementary schools gave them like a golden little nugget. Like if they wanted to find something, they could, you know, potentially use that uh, to create some kind of story because they like to, uh, I've seen in the media, the media there likes to paint Westerners and foreigners as kind of like the, not the enemy, so to speak, but the bad guy, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, with the, amongst the Russian people, have always felt very comfortable and safe and they're very hospitable. So I'm not talking about the Russian people here. I'm talking about the media propaganda. And there's so much there about like, you know, the foreign, like the problems in Russia exist because of the foreigners is basically what I'm trying to say. Foreigners cause problems for Russia. So it's, you're living in poverty and you're not making any more money this year and inflation and this problem, that problem, because look at the foreigners, look at the Americans, look at the, the Europeans or something like that. So the government there and the media there in Russia is always point, pointing the finger at the foreigners. And so I, I just was, I was always concerned about uh, them finding some reason to say something about me if they needed to, uh, to kind of, you know, to, to take me away or something like that, use me as a pawn in some way. So that was in there too, because it's just, they've done it before and they can do it again. Yeah. And I guess it just, a lot of it depends on how much exposure, how much does your message get out there? 
And so it's something you have to be conscientious of as you, you know, your profile gets larger. Um, you have to be aware of it, you know, and, and ex exhibit some maybe self-censorship or not, <laughs> you know, but um, I want to go back to Ukraine for a little bit in terms of what do you think the United States' response will be if Putin goes in, you know, with, with real authority and, and, and uh, you know, there, 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 there's a real war, there's a real kinetic conflict. What does the United States do? What does Europe do? Well, I think the first thing that Biden will do would be to change his diaper. Because uh, I, I, I don't think he's going to know what to do. In uh, and then I yeah. think, I don't know, I, I, I think he's talking a big game now about sanctions. Um, the problem with the sanctions is that they're going to hurt the Russian people more than the Russian government. And that's going right. to provide the Russian government the opportunity to, again, say, look at the foreigners. They're the problem in your life. You don't have this, this, and that because the foreigners have their sanctions on Russia. So I think that it would play in Putin's hand to solidify power and support in Russia by saying things are bad right now because the Americans have done this to you. And I'm your strong leader mm -hmm. fighting against the Americans. So I think that the, the sanctions definitely would impact Russia in a negative way. But not Putin and not Putin's inner circle of, you know, oligarchs. And so they'll be good. They're still going to have their houses and their cars and their trips and their airplanes and mansions and so on and so forth. Uh, it's going to be the average Russian person who's going to be affected by those. And that's going to allow Putin to take advantage of that and solidify support, which is exactly what he wants to do. We were talking about this before. So I think that it'll be counterproductive in that regard. But yes, it will do damage to the Russian economy. Um, I think he'll, you know, do things maybe potentially with preventing them from using the SWIFT system. Um, yes. Uh, but I know that from living in Russia, I've seen many news stories about Russia designing its own version of that. They also have in Russia the what they call the RUNET, which is the Russian internet. So they're concerned if they ever got cut off from the internet that they would have their own I guess it would be intranet <laughs> uh, called the runet. So the, I think that they, there are probably more examples that I'm just not aware of. I think that they've made a lot of progress towards creating alternatives to whatever the West could deprive them of, whether it be the internet, SWIFT system, or uh, other resources. I think that they have at least some kind of idea of how they would replace their current source with another source if the sanctions were to come in and do that. So I don't know that even if the sanctions that are being talked about, of course, I'm not on the inside. I don't know what they are exactly, except for what I've seen in the media. Uh, I'm sure that there's even more that haven't been discussed, but I'm not sure that they would have as strong as an impact as, as people believe, simply because I think that Russia is anticipating if they do go into Ukraine, they know that there's going to be sanctions and they've got to have some idea of what they're going to do about that. Right. Well, it's going to be, it, it's certainly heating up. It's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few weeks. I know Twitter people are up in arms about this, but. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's going to happen before the end of March. Um, although I could be wrong. Is it our business? Is, it our the United, business? is, is this, is it our, as an, as an American, uh, is this any of our business to get involved in this conflict? You know, I'm conflicted on the issue. On the, on the one hand, I generally actually support the idea of the unification of Ukraine and, and Russia because of the grounds with 
which Putin kind of views them. And I see that Ukraine is kind of a uh, Russia-Soviet, or not pro-Soviet, Russia satellite, just like a sphere of influence, right? I believe in spheres of influences, I guess you could say. And I think that Russia has the right to have more influence in the countries that border it than the United States does. Uh, right. You know, just like we, we certainly have what you know, the Monroe Doctrine in North America. We're not going to allow Russians to come in and have, you know, better relationships with Mexico than we do or something to that effect. So I think that they have the right to have something like the Monroe Doctrine when it comes to at least the former Soviet republics. And uh, so from that point of view, I kind of support the idea of, well, let's just say I support the Russian side, I guess, more than the NATO side. But on the other, on the other side of that is the problem of like appeasement, which we've learned those lessons from World War II. Uh, if you allow Russia to invade Ukraine, what's the stop from going into other countries after that, right. like Finland and Sweden? Then you have Russia controls Finland, Sweden, and Ukraine. And now what? <laughs> I mean, I mean, because Finland and Sweden are not part of NATO right now, but now they're talking about joining NATO because of the potential, I guess as you would call a domino effect of allowing Russia to go into Ukraine. So I kind of conflicted in that because I wouldn't like to see a bad example be set and then Russia follow that and go into Finland and Sweden or other non-NATO countries because technically speaking, he could continue to expand and expand as long as it isn't such a NATO country and uh, NATO wouldn't be re required to respond to that. Yeah. So I've got one question for you that it's a little bit unanticipated, but hearing about your travels and, you know, going, uh, it sounds like, in the Balkans, around the Mediterranean, um, you know, just kind of, it, it sounds like you're having a good time and, and exploring. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about digital nomadism and people traveling and working out of Airbnbs. It's gotten a lot harder, you know, really since COVID and really probably over the last year in terms of um, passports, you know, jab passports to be able to, to enter certain places. I've actually come across it myself in a country in Central Europe where I wasn't able to go. Um, what has your experience been like in terms of, you know, moving around? Is there, what, what places are more open than others? Well, I, uh, I guess we're on the early end of our trip still. So we've been so far to uh, Egypt, Jordan, and Turkey. Uh, Egypt, most of so what we've seen so far, and, we've, and actually I could speak about it more broadly because we've been researching where we're going next and, possibilities for where we would go in the future. So we're fairly, uh, I guess, educated on the requirements for each country. Um, so far, most for the most part, it's, it's a matter of showing a PCR test for most of these countries. Mm -hmm. So if you arrive, or actually before you arrive, before you depart, you show a PCR test and you can basically go. And we're going to countries that allow Americans and Russians to go without a visa or at least get a visa at the border. And uh, we've been doing that. So when we went to Egypt, we had to get a visa at the border. You just, you just basically buy it and you stamp it in your passport and you walk through. So we haven't had any problems. The only thing, that we, only place where I didn't feel comfortable and didn't like was Jordan, actually. And mm -hmm. that's because they required the PCR test to depart. And they also required the PCR test upon arrival, which I thought was really mm -hmm. awkward. It's like you, I just flew here from Cairo. It was an hour and a half ago. I just took the test. Why do I got to take it again? So you don't, wow. so you don't recognize the Egyptian certificate or something like that. So you got to take it again and they did it for everybody. And they were really kind of 
they really stuck that pull up your nose really deep. Actually, it was the it was very uncomfortable. I liked like reflex, it caused like causing you to reflect. Like <laughs> like like you. Yeah. I pulled her aunt out of the nose. That's how far deep she right. stuck in the nose. Right. Like I've had it done several times now, and it's like it's uncomfortable or awkward or whatever, but it's not like it doesn't hurt. And Jordan, they were sticking that so far up because the reaction was no. <laughs> You're done, right? I mean, I didn't even think about it. It was just right. an automatic response. And then they give you your certificate, and then you're fine, I guess. And then you got to go get your visa. Uh, you buy your visa, which was actually kind of expensive there, too, by the way. So I, I just didn't have a good time in Jordan because of the PCR requirements, and the visa was expensive. And then on the streets, they were also uh, enforcing a masks on the streets. And so you couldn't even walk around on the street by yourself without a mask on. Now, I did, of course. And one time I was approached by these two guys who I guess were uh, collecting fines. They had a bag of money, basically. And they were trying to talk to me. And I was like, I don't speak Arabic. I kept on walking. I knew what they wanted. I could tell. You could just, you could just understand what somebody wants, uh, even if you don't understand the language. They were pointing to their face. They were you know, indicating mask. They had a bag full of money. Mm-hmm. They had some official document they were going to write up. So it was like, okay, you're getting ready to write me a ticket for not having a mask. I get that. I don't understand Arabic. I'm going home. Thank you. Goodbye. Have a nice evening. Uh, is basically the way I played that off. And so I did that, and they kind of persisted a little bit, but eventually they let me just go. Um, so I was I was a little taken aback by the fact that they were really enforcing the mask on the streets. And uh, so we left actually like two days after that. We were planning to be there for two weeks, and we, we that was like the second day, and we were gone in two days after that because we were like, this is just, you know, we're not going to live somewhere where you can't walk around even on the street with a mask on. And uh, we, we went to Petra, and we went to the Dead Sea. We saw the place where Jesus was baptized. And we did that in one day. The whole trip we did in one day. And then we left the day after that. Uh, when we went to Turkey, Turkey was a situation where you get your visa at the border. You show a PCR test before you depart. Everything's been fine in Turkey. They have requirements for wearing masks in, like, the stores. Uh, but they're polite about it. You know, it's not, you know I, 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 right. I, I'm, a, I'm an opponent of the mask thing. But I put my mask on. It's, I think it's just a matter of cultural respect. If it was America, I'd be like, no, screw you. I'm not putting my mask on <laughs> because I'm an American. I, I would do that, I guess. But yeah. I'm not going to do that in some foreign country. I think it's a matter of just being respectful to the, to the local uh, culture. And they're nice right. about it. And if you put your mask on, it's no big deal. Uh, we're going to Macedonia. Uh, as far as I understand, you need a PCR test to go there before departure. And most of these airports are offering them at the airport. So you can get your results on the same day in a couple hours at the airport. Uh, so it's not, it's not, but you gotta go to the airport a couple hours early. Uh, they are valid for three days, but it's still just more convenient just to go to the airport a couple hours early and get it done. So that's what we basically do. We go to the airport like four or five hours early. We get our PCR test. We go check in we go wait to the terminal. We fly. Uh, and we, we intend to keep doing that, I guess, for the time being, because we're in this immigration process and we don't know exactly how long it's going to take for my wife's visa to be ready to come to America. So are you just going to be hopping around until the visa has been approved? Yeah, basically, because these countries, we're choosing countries. Most of them allow Americans and Russians to be there for 90 days at a time. So we'll go to Macedonia for the next 85 days or something like that. And then we'll go to like yeah. Bosnia, which is right next door, Albania right next door. So that right there, between those four countries, Bosnia, Serbia, Albania, and Macedonia, or technically northern Macedonia, if you want to be accurate about it that would be a year right there three months apart for each country Mm -hmm. and i think that by that time we should have some indication about what our timeline is 
Um, it could be soon. It could be t- tomorrow. I can get a notification that says your visa is moving to the, the Department of State and take the next step to get your interview ready and so on and so forth. And we could be in the United States like in two months from then. Or we could get a notification in, in, a, in 11 months from now and, and get that notification. So it's just, just not clear when it's going to be. So yeah, we're going to be hopping around from country to country. We have at least a year of countries where we can stay for now um, between Bosnia, Serbia, Albania, and Macedonia. But the, but then technically speaking, we can circle back to quote Jeb Sack. Right. We can circle back, go back to Turkey for a little while, go back to Egypt. You know, so I, I think that we're going to basically do something along those lines. Hopefully we won't be there for that long where we got to circle back. And I hate using that expression because I don't like Jeb Psaki. But literally circling back, though, because Jeb Psaki <laughs> used it in a different yeah. context. I'm talking about literally traveling in a circle right. because we would go back to where we started. So I, I guess I'll use the word circle back. But um, – yeah, I think it's okay. But it, yeah, you're right though. It's 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 on one hand it is fun and it is exciting to see new countries. Uh, but you need a home base. But yeah, you, you do need, need to a have base. a place where you can just chill. It's it's, it's your place, yeah. right? And now we have a, a child. She's 11 months old. She's going to be a year in February. For now that's okay, I guess with her, but still technically, you know, she should have some stability in her life. Um so she's not really getting that, I guess. It's going to be a come point in time where she's going to be, you know, two and three and she's going to need to have like friends and stuff like that. So, right. uh, and have people interact with that are just not mom and dad and the airport security guy. So uh, hopefully we're going to be able to, uh, I think my goal anyway is to be back home in the United States by Thanksgiving this year. Okay. So you're expecting it's, it's going to take some time. Well, but, I, mean, I mean, I think that's reasonable. Technically you speaking on the government website, it says the processing time is 27 to 35 months. Uh, but that, mm-hmm. that's, that's why we're kind of like, don't know how long this is going to take. Mm-hmm. However, uh, I'm, I have this membership on some app where you can do like your tracking of your case. And it puts you in groups based on people who filed around the same time you did. That's so, interesting. So I'm going to, yeah. So basically you put, you put in your, your uh, case file number and it, groups you with with me anyway 55 other people who filed around the same time that i did so either two weeks before or two weeks after and so we filed in october of 2021 so about 55 people who are members of this app who filed around the same time period and of those 55 people four of them have already gotten approved so not everybody had to wait the 28 months is what i'm trying to say some people got it approved right. in the first three months. It's been about three months now from when we started. Actually, it's been a little longer. It's been 105 days. So, so far in 105 days, four of them have already gotten approved. So I don't think it's going to be necessarily next week or next month, but I think there's a chance that summertime, maybe fall. I mean, as long as we're not the last one of the group to get it, right? Uh, yeah. If we're falling in like the 50th percentile, maybe, maybe we can get it done by the fall, I guess. So I'm just hope- hopeful from that point of view. Well, we certainly wish you the best with it. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what are you working on right now and where can people find you? Well, I am in the early stages right now of uh, taking the Calyx campaign and making it a chapter of a larger national organization that we're going to be creating called uh, the Campaign for National Partition, CNP. And uh, the goal is kind of like what we were talking about in the beginning, to create uh, you know, draw some lines along ideological trends that also take into consideration the local economies and transportation corridors and, and other 
issues like uh, culture and history and geography and uh, to draw those lines, draw the new lines. And uh, the Calix campaign, yes, California uh, is going to be the California chapter of that organization. We've already filed its tax, uh, its tax documents. So for EIN number, for example, uh, once we have our website up and some other, you know, things like, uh, you know, your, your governing documents and some of those things done, like, you know, the bylaws and the mission statement, then we'll file for the 527 tax exempt status and things like that. And uh, then we'll be we'll be moving ahead with the campaign to create that campaign uh, for national, not national divorce, national partition, CMP, which is basically advocating for national divorce. Now, like you said before, uh, a lot of people have their own definitions of what national divorce means, which is why I wanted to name it national partition, because it's, I mean, no matter what the definition of divorce is, it's still partitioning the country at the end of the day. So partition, I think, is a more general term. And it is what we're about. Uh, the divorce is, I think, an aspect of that because the divorce will answer questions as it comes to the assets, the debts. Who, we're going to share the assets. We're going to split up the assets. We're going to share the debts. Uh, that's going to be the terms of the divorce settlement. Uh, but this, I think the partitioning part is a separate process. So I, I want to focus more on the partitioning part, where we're going to draw the lines. And I want to start a national conversation about where the lines should be drawn. And I think that people who are, uh, you know, public policy experts, people who are, uh, you know, ec economists, people who are smarter than me can maybe sit down and, and, and work on the specific details about what we're going to do about our assets and what we're going to do about our debts. Uh, but I'm pretty good with geography. And I think I could draw some pretty good lines that might make sense, at least to me. <laughs> and uh, we can at least have a starting point. And that's the idea, have a starting point. Let's, I'm going to present a map in the near future. I say, let's start from this map and say, what's wrong with this map? Why couldn't the lines be drawn here? And elicit some responses from the public and say, hey, maybe somebody will point something out. Hey, this town should not be in the blue zone because of X, Y, Z. I live here and I know ABC, right? So I, of course, can't know everything about every place in the country, but I can see, I can look at a map. I can look at historical trends. I can analyze uh, census data, voting records. I can look at the geography and I can try to make a, a map I think makes sense to some extent as a starting point for a national conversation about where we should redraw the lines. And I think that there's going to be two branches of this organization. The first one is going to be about the national partition. Well, let's actually say three branches. I'll put the third one afterwards. This is, the first one's about the national partition, as I've discussed, creating these new countries out of one that reflect basically the ideology of the region. But also, as kind of a compromise, I think it might be worth to, like I was talking about before, this idea of the European Union, where maybe we can redraw the lines of the states and not necessarily create a different country, still have the United States of America, but with different state lines. I think that maybe it might be worth to maybe for people who don't want to break the country apart or who don't want to see the United States dissolve or cease to exist keep the united states government well let's just keep the structure of the government let's say but then redraw the lines around the states that make better sense for the people who are living there because those lines are arbitrary those lines are completely arbitrary lines and then we're forced to live within those lines and we're forced to live within those lines with people we don't want to live with in many respects the same same thing happened with when the european powers and the americans had colonialism in africa and parts of asia where they just draw in lines 
That's why you have straight lines that make up the borders of Saudi Arabia. They just take a map and they draw some lines. And they don't care who's living on one side or the other side of those lines. That's why you have conflicts and uh, political instability in Africa. Because they're just Westerners and Europeans drawing lines on the continent. Separating clans, putting clans that hate each other for centuries together. Now all of a sudden they have to work together and have a democracy and they hate each other. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. But right. those, that's what happened when you had colonialism. And so those right. arbitrary lines that were drawn in Africa are what were drawn in North America too. So we should maybe redraw the lines in a way that we can now say makes sense so that we don't have to have places like California where millions of, of, of Republican and conservative Californians are forced to live in a blue state that they don't want to live in. Or the opposite could be the true in the case where people have like, uh, I know that there's parts of Texas, for example, that are more blue, like around the border with Mexico. El Paso, for example, is more of a blue area. Why should El Paso be a part of Texas when maybe it should be a part of New Mexico? Which would be more closely aligned with its culture and its political ideology. So, I th- and I, th- I think I have a really cool app that I've been playing with that allows you to look at the United States and redraw the maps, redraw the lines of the of the states. And the cool thing is that it actually tells you because it has the data imp- imb- embedded into it if it would be a blue state or a red state as a result and what the change would be. And so it's really kind of a cool, interesting, cool little. You can even play a game with it and just make make your own states out of it. And I think it was created by a political science professor for his class. And he had some assignments for his students that said, change the borders of the states in such a way where you can affect the result of the last election. Right? It was a way to kind of teach the students about uh, the arbitrary nature of the electoral college, basically. Saying, mm-hmm. if you move this county into this state, and then that changes the electoral vote, or, or does that change the electoral vote? Something to that effect, right? For example, Cincinnati is on the border with Kentucky. What happens if you put Cincinnati in the state of Kentucky? Does it become a blue state all of a sudden? I don't know. I didn't do that. But you could play that out is what the idea is. You could play right. that out. You could sort of see. And I think right. that's really kind of fun to play with it. So uh, I, I'm hopefully I'm going to be able to put something like that on the on the website, nationalpartition.org, so that people can go in there and draw their own states and submit their own suggestions on where we should draw those state lines. Or as an alternative, what I prefer, let's have those lines that you draw maybe be more abstract or more macro level and create countries instead of 50 states. Yeah, so is, is there a website where you're going to be putting all this information? I mean, right now, what, what's your Twitter handle for everybody? If you could put that out there. Yeah, so the Twitter handle we'll right now is, well. is the abbreviation for national. So N-A-T-L partition. So N-A-T-L partition. And uh, I have a Facebook page that we just created a couple of days ago. Same thing, National Partition, Campaign for National Partition. We have uh, an Instagram also with the name National Partition. The only thing with Twitter is that it doesn't allow you to have uh, enough characters to have the word National Partition. So I've yeah, abbreviated like National to NATL, National Partition in yeah. that respect. And soon there will be a website at nationalpartition.org where the information will be saved in one location for nationalpartition.org. And the last thing I wanted to mention is the third thing I was talking about, the third branch, is this uh, publication. Hopefully we'll be able to design a publication uh, called The National Partitioner, which will be a uh, kind of a newspaper, not really a newspaper because they're not going to be publishing some physical paper someplace, but it will be an online newspaper. And there will be a downloadable PDF that looks like a newspaper, but it'll be an online news website basically that will have contributors from around the country who want to share uh, news and views 
on things that are related to uh, national divorce, partition, uh, secession, self-determination, anything kind of related to the topics that uh, the campaign for national partition will uh, engage in. And so it won't be like a general news site like CNN or Fox News, but it'll be something kind of more finely tuned towards nationalism, secessionism, uh, partition, and so on and so forth. And uh, it can be people from uh, both sides of the political spectrum, because I think that, as I was saying in the beginning, even though this is, seems kind of contradictory, we don't. I don't want to share a country with the Democrats. Many Democrats don't want to share a country with me. But with this project for partitioning the country, it could be the last time that we come to the table and and work this out before we part ways peacefully. And so I, I kind of welcome, even though I, I really detest most leftists, welcome them to participate in the campaign in their own state. <laughs> let's keep our distance a little bit. <laughs> so, social <laughs> right. distancing. Well, let's have them participate in their own state to, to come to that resolution where we can say it's time to part ways peacefully. And in order to do that, even though we're at each other's throat, we don't like each other and we don't want to share a country, we're going to come together one last time, sit at this table, work out this map, and then peacefully part ways. Excellent. Well, Louis, we really appreciate you joining us today and, and making this all work on pretty short notice. And we wish you all the best in your travels. And, uh, you know, good luck on getting the visa and coming back home. One last thing, don't close your, uh, don't close Chrome just yet. We want to make sure we capture all the audio and video. Okay, sure. Yeah. Right, we'll, we'll stop Thanks so right much. there. Thanks for so much for having me. And yes, uh, hoping that we'll get back to the country. And, you know, we are going through this process to immigrate legally. And uh, even though I'm a right-wing Trump loyalist populist, and I don't like illegal immigration, Legal immigration is a good thing, and our family is going through that process. And I think that, as a last point, I would like to point out, plugging the idea that when we do talk about things like immigration reform, we we shouldn't just be talking about building the wall and making Mexico pay for it, but we should be also talking about modernizing the legal immigration process so that people can come to the United States legally. And frankly, I understand why People might want to cross that border illegally if they were in a position where they had to wait 28 or 35 months to come to the United States. And you were in a position where you can cross that border. I joked with my father one time, hey, instead of jumping from country to country, why don't we go to Mexico, cross that border, <laughs> we'll be there in five days. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. the re I mean, it's a joke, but it's the reality. The situation is I have an 11-month-old daughter. She doesn't get to spend time with my family her grandma. She doesn't get to be in her country. She's never been to her country before. She's a U.S. citizen. I'm a U.S. citizen, yet neither of us can go home because we're not going to, of course, abandon her mother and my wife while we sure. wait three yeah. years for the government to look at our petition. So what if the joke was, well, we'll just go to Mexico and cross over in the, in the desert and we'll be there in five days. It's a reality. The situation is that we would then be there because the borders are open. And Biden is more concerned about the border with Russia and Ukraine than he is with the American border. And we would be able to cross that border. We'd be in the United States and we could adjust her status because so many of those uh, people who cross the border illegally get so many benefits uh, and the ability to, to stay there that it makes no sense for people to really wait 35 months. So that's why I, I say that we need to build that wall and make Mexico pay for it. And we need to modernize the legal process so that people have a reason to wait in line. Because it really doesn't make sense to wait in line for 35 months. Yeah, I agree. Those are really good points, Lewis. Absolutely. 
Okay, well, um, thank you once again.